Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes. This week, we're doing almost a coda to our Awakening series, because we are going to discuss a book that was influential for not one, not two, but all three of the people that we discussed in our Great Awakening series, John Wesley, George Woodfield, Jonathan Edwards. If you could pick one book that profoundly influenced all three of those men, it would be this book. And the book is called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. You heard us mention it several times in those podcast episodes by Henry Skugel. Well, and what makes this book amazing? Obviously, it's impact. But then you find out that Henry Skugel was born in 1650 and he died in 1678. He died at the age of 28 from tuberculosis. And so he is writing this book, which shows incredible maturity in his early 20s. And 100 years later, it would influence some of what we would consider the giants of the Great Awakening. Yes. Yeah, this is from the Crossway Short Classics series, which we've done a couple of these. Uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers is in this series. Heaven is a World of Love Mm -hmm. by Jonathan Edwards. There's I don't know, 10 of these now, 12 of these now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just so good. I mean, it's it's kind of the history of the of the church's greatest hits. And yeah. they're short. They're very readable. They're like $7.99 on Crossway's mm-hmm. website. You can get them on Amazon as well. Just gems. I'm, I, I just love this series. And one of the things they do in the series is they get somebody to write a short forward for right. these books. And, and so this one is by Joel Beakey. And if you don't know Joel Beakey at all, he is probably the greatest living scholar on the Puritans. I mean, the guy is Mm -hmm. just unbelievable in his breadth of knowledge. He also is the president of Reformation Heritage Books, which has published dozens and dozens of original works from the Puritans. Many sets that had gone out of of publishing since they were first published that hundreds of years later now are being brought back. Mm Some that are being translated anyway. His his work, I think, will go down for a long time into the future as somebody who brought the Puritans back into our popular consciousness in America. And he, he wrote the forward to this one. And I, I love just to put this uh, next to what you said about Skugel. At the very beginning of the forward, he said, The lives of some men shine like minor stars in the heavens, faint yet steady, while others are like a flash of lightning that passes quickly but starts a fire that continues and spreads. The latter was the case for the author of this book, whose short life was God's means to ignite in other men a flaming love for God that has continued long after he passed from this world. Which in and of itself is just a wonderful point that Mm -hmm. his life was very short. He left effectively one, this is not even a a book, It's, it's really like a long letter Right, and we we know very little about his life. I think there may be a few other small writings, but nothing of any prominence. Mm-hmm. And yet, this book played a huge role in some of those supernova kinds of bright lights later on. Right. So it, he's going to talk a lot in this book about humility. There is no greater picture of humility than what happened with this book. This person has largely been forgotten, but. Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards and the many, many others he influenced are still mm-hmm. household names. And it, it's just incredible how this short book has had such an impact. As you mentioned, he he was born in Scotland. He was briefly a pastor, lived a very short life, 
died of a very common uh, deadly illness, tuberculosis, or sometimes you'll see say he died of consumption. He, uh, we don't know much other than he was a faithful minister, and he wrote this book as a letter to some friends to talk about the real life of God that is the Christian life. And it, it struck me as I was rereading through this book this week, how interesting it is that this started out as a letter and then gets published as a book. There have been a couple of different instances in Christian history where somebody who's really just trying to genuinely help someone mm-hmm. uh, in a small way, that work becomes a big uh, best-selling book. So so the other one I thought of immediately was Martin Luther, whose most famous work on prayer was a letter to his barber. I guess when he was yes. getting his hair cut, he was talking to his barbers, barbers asking him questions about how to pray. And so he wrote him a long letter about prayer, and it's become one of Luther's really most famous works. And you can do the same thing reading the letters of Charles Spurgeon, John Newton, is is uh, he has some pretty prominent letters, and it's just funny. It's the everyday course of these pastors looking to help people understand what to do in the Christian life that have become their enduring classics. Well, and another one that comes to mind that you're familiar with is Brother Lawrence. The Practice of the Presence of God was a series of letters uh, that he he wrote. Uh, he, he said, I, "I will meet with you, and you can write these things down as long as you are serious about your faith." And what comes down to us is the practice of the presence of God is that person written, writing down those little sessions. And I think that's a really good point, Cole, is uh, most some of the great treasures of Christian, quote, literature were that was not the point. They, mm-hmm. Their point was simply to pastor people. Right. And this book is very pastoral. As you, as you start to read it, 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 there's a little bit of it that sounds kind of old, a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. the Puritans sometimes are hard to read because of their complexity. Sometimes they're hard to read a little bit because of the way they structure their sentences and the words. But overall, this right. is a pretty easy read. And it's one that you can tell it is meant to have a personal effect, like somebody's sitting down and having a conversation with you. He, he begins the book with a central question, what is true religion? True religion is a bit of a buzzword for the Puritans. Uh, We we Mm -hmm. say true religion, and most people maybe think of the James passage. You know, true religion is to visit orphans and take care of widows. But for them, true religion is is what we would say the real authentic Christian life or the fullness of life that Jesus promises. What's this all about is kind of the answer to the question, what is true Mm -hmm. religion? And he actually starts out with what it is not. What what this is not a true religion, and he gives us three things that are not sufficient to be true religion. And he doesn't spend very long on these, but you could spend a long time talking about these things. And Jonathan Edwards actually will go on to spend a long time talking about signs that are not sure signs of either true revival or changed heart or true religion. The first one is doctrine and theology, and we, we've talked about this quite a bit. There's a difference between just knowing the truth and believing the truth, knowing certain historical facts and understanding that they have something to do with you. So just because you have correct doctrine and theology does not mean that you have the life of God in in your soul. Secondly, good actions. So Mm -hmm. very good religious actions like praying and giving combined with things, just honesty, integrity, 
what we would consider good outward actions, are not alone an indicator of the life of God in the soul of man. And the third one is passion and emotion. I thought this one was maybe the most relevant for today. He he has a sentence in here where he talks about people that are so overwhelmed with a sense of loving God that they persuade themselves that they really do love him. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's really, it's kind of on the nose, but it, it really is pertinent for our culture of worship in certain settings where you go and get this great religious experience, this experience of feeling moved by God, but the moment you walk out, it's over. And so your your spiritual life ends up being a pursuit of getting that emotional experience again to know that you're right with God. And what school is saying in each one of these three is not that each of these three are bad, just right. that they are insufficient. In mm-hmm. fact, if you really do, if you really do have true religion, if you really are a Christian and you have the spirit in your life, all three of these are going to show up. But right. the fact that all the all three of these show up doesn't mean your heart has actually been changed. So you see what he's saying is not, hey, these are these are bad, these are negative signs, but these are insufficient signs that the heart has been changed, the spirit is at work, true religion is being lived out. Yeah, that question of what is true religion, particularly in the 1600s and 1700s, I mean, remember, we're coming out of the Catholicism and the ritual of that, then we move in to the Anglicanism, and by this time, it's lost its force as well, its heart as well, and so... Uh, one of the interesting anecdotes is uh, this book was given from Charles Wesley. John's brother was given to Whitfield about 100 years after it was written. And Whitfield said, I never knew what true religion was until I read this book. It was an epiphany for him as he was searching that true religion has to be more than just doctrine, has to be more than just liturgy. You know, that that was occupying their minds. And this was the spark that that really lit up George Whitfield. Another interesting thing on that is the Wesleys were given this book by their mother. Yes. So yeah. uh, John and Charles Wesley were given this book by their mother. She told him it was a trustworthy book. They both read it and their lives were changed by it. And then, you know, George Whitfield. So you can really trace it back yeah. even further than Charles to say if, if Charles' mother had not given him this book and he had not given it to George Whitfield, you know, what would the effect have been? Right. So the the second half of that first section of this book is then, okay, so what is true religion? And uh, what what would he define then if it's not these outward actions, and it's not these emotions, what would be the signs of true religion? Well, his, his short definition, which I really love, is that true religion is a union of the soul with God and a formation of Christ within us. The union of our soul with God and the formation of Christ within us, which is obviously very biblical uh, teaching there. But he said that participate, and he called this the divine life. It's not just us doing something. Obviously, this is the divine life, the life of God in the soul of man. And he had four forms of the divine life. He said it's comprised of faith, love, purity, and humility. And those four 
forms of divine life. He spends some time in that first section then going into each of those four uh, of what, uh, you know, in what manner do they form Christ within us, our faith, our love, our purity, and our humility. There's an interesting point in this that it's a pretty deep theological point. Part of the reason is because it's an underrated point in the way that we as American evangelicals conceive of the gospel and the Christian life. Skugel is framing all of this as this life is the life of God, and we have been invited into the life of God. So, so we have been invited to be partakers of the divine life, which is a very strong theme in the New Testament, especially in John's writings. The gospel, mm-hmm. first, second, third John, even Revelation, has this theme of we are now participating, communing with God in his own divine life. And this makes a big impact through this book because what you need to know is he's not saying if you will basically do faith, love, uh, humility, and purity, then you'll be a good Christian. What he's saying is God's life is characterized. His internal life is characterized by these four things. Of course, we would put faith maybe in a little bit different category. Faith is the one that gets us united with him. But Love, right. which he which he calls charity, purity, which would be the holiness of God, and the humility of God, which we see in Jesus Christ. Paul points this out in Philippians chapter 2, to make himself nothing so that he could come and forfeit his life for us. That Those are qualities of the divine life. So what we're doing is not doing these things so that we can earn God's favor. What we're doing is we are emulating God and participating in these things with God, that is the very substance of our life with him. One of the great quotes when he was talking about love, because we can think about, okay, I need to love God, but he's coming at it, as you say, in a different way. For example, he here's a quote. He says, love comes by a new nature instructing our affections and prompting them. So he doesn't mm-hmm. place this divine attribute of love so much as, uh, excuse me, as being initiated by us, but as coming from the new nature and then beginning to overtake our behaviors. Right. Yeah, he goes through and he gives examples of Jesus in his own life, fulfilling each of these categories and showing, mm-hmm. hey, what we're doing is really emulating Jesus by being united with him to do all of these things. And it and it comes from an internal change. It comes from the new nature that you mentioned and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing that's going to bring about this life in us. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, it goes back to something that Cliff said in our podcast on the Great Awakening and something that he said hundreds of times is grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. The change Mm -hmm. that takes place in us, the grace of God in us, changes us on the inside so that then we do actually participate. So this this is not a lazy Christianity in the sense of, oh, if God's going to be the one doing the change, then I don't have to do anything. But, But it is a profoundly different kind of grace than we would give another person. Because we actually don't have the power to change a person from the inside out, but God does. Right. So so while he is changing us and we are living this life with him, he's the one doing the changing and we are the ones putting forth effort to live godly lives. And those two things together 
are producing this fountain of divine life that happens in the life of every believer. Right. So he he establishes this, and he describes it in several different ways. Participation in the divine nature, union of the soul, <clears throat> the image of God drawn upon the soul, uh, Christ formed within us. All these images are getting at the same topic of, for a believer, for a, a true believer, what is true religion? Well, it it is a new nature that is a participation in the divine life of God, being like him, being with him, participating with him, being molded into the image of Christ. All of these are synonyms for what he says is the true proof. It is the true nature of our life with Christ. And one another quote that I really like of his that emphasizes your your point about grace and effort is he says, arise and be doing, and the Lord will be with us. Arise and be doing, and the Lord will be with us. It's his expression of confidence in divine assistance. In other words, go be about the Christian life and be absolutely confident that the Lord is with us. And so you get this, exactly what you said, the idea of go, begin making an effort and trust the new nature to direct that effort and to make it successful in forming us. And that's a very different, I mean, we should pause here for a second and say, that was very different in the 1600s. I would argue it's very different in the 2000s, is sometimes we want to take an outside-in approach, uh, because that's just how we've been raised. You know, we're just raised as achievers and doers and attainers. And this completely turns that around and takes an inside-out approach to discipleship, to growth in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the second section really gets at that that kind of topic. Not just what is it, but what is it like to live this way? And so the, the second section is titled, The Excellence and Advantage of Religion. Again, don't get hung up on religion as in the external, you know, you, right. we've all got religion versus relationship and all that kind of in our Mm -hmm. language now by religion he means true religion like we've been talking about what are the excellencies and the advantages of living this way what is it like to live this way and in the opening part of that section he says the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love and i when i read that i thought i have heard this before um I I know this quote from somewhere, so I looked it up. It is the opening quote at the beginning of John Piper's The Pleasures of God, if you've read that book. And in the beginning of that book, he talks about that this book was a major breakthrough book for him in understanding true life with God. And so this quote is really interesting. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. We might actually conceive of this as the opposite. The truth and the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by it being a subject of somebody else's or it being an object of somebody else's love. Right, right. So to be beloved is worth and excellency. But here, Skugel flips that around, that our worth and our excellency are measured by what we love. And Mm -hmm. this is also a very important but underrated biblical theme. You are what you love. That's the James K. Smith book. We become what we love. We become what we worship. We become either, if we're idolatrous, like our idols the Bible talks about in Isaiah, 
that these idols can't speak, they cannot hear, they cannot um, see, they have no wisdom, and those who worship them become like them. Well, the same is true if you love the living God. You become like God because you love him. He is the object of your love. And so the greatest worth that we could ever attain is to set our love wholly and completely on God because he is the greatest and most desirable thing in the universe. This is a very, if you've read Piper before, this is a very Piper thing. But but what's kind of interesting about this is it's a very Henry Skugel thing that John right. Piper discovered. So it's going to sound yes. new all over again to you. If you read this book, if you've read a lot of Christian hedonists, John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Uh, he got a lot of that from the Chalmers book that we talked about, but right. he got a lot of that from Skugel. I mean, Piper is a close reader of the Puritans. So here in this second section, we're exploring that. What does it mean to set your love completely on God? And 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 what is that like? What does that do to you if you do that? Well, well, the biggest thing is your life is transformed to become more like what you love. If you love God, which this is this is what I'm preaching on this weekend, so it's nice that this ties in. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Well, if you do that, you will become like God. You will right. bear the fruits of the Spirit. You will obey Him. You will look like Christ. In, in John chapter 7, this is the way that Jesus says it. Whoever believes in me, we would put believe and love there in the same category. Whoever believes in right. me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is so well said. And it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about this before, but what he talks about in this section influence, you can see it really influenced Edwards in his talk about changing your affections, the objects of your heart's desire, and that I really hadn't made the Piper connection, but that's exactly right. What struck me in this section, the excellence and advantage of true religion was, he goes into it saying, look, you probably think that pursuing religion means giving up your joys and pleasures of this life. But he says uh, this, he says, quote, any person that is engaged in a passionate affection easily ignores more ordinary pleasures. Hmm. So his thesis is when you set your love on God, that's when you find out what real joy is, what real pleasure is. And so you can see the connection where Piper is getting this. He says, you think you're turning away from pleasures and affections, but what you're going to do is open up. This love is going to bring you into true joy and true affection. So you're not really losing anything. You're gaining a greater joy. And right. I thought that is a very interesting way to look at the Christian life. Because I think today we too think when we convert, we're giving up. We even use that phrase, we're going to give up some of the things of this world. And many of them, at least we thought they were going to be pleasurable. Whereas he's going to argue, no, you're actually gaining real joy and real pleasure as you set your love on Christ. Mm -hmm. That's a great distinction because the Christian life does have both of these things uh, that can that can seem like they're intention often, but they are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, Christianity is about self-sacrifice, laying, mm -hmm. you know, we take up our cross, we lay down our life, we take up our cross and follow Jesus. But at the same time, 
at his right hand, Psalm 16 says, there are pleasures forevermore. And of course, Piper and you know what we're talking about right now are so big on the fact that there actually is no greater joy than God himself. Those mm-hmm. two things actually converge together. We lay down our life, which is the temporary pleasure that we know, and right. we sacrifice real sacrifices. We suffer real suffering right. for a joy and a pleasure that cannot be found in this world, that puts all the joys of this world uh, out of comparison with it. That that is the dichotomy at the heart of the Christian life. Absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. It's uh, it's an interesting thing to me when I think about this idea and how far it's influenced people. You can just now, you know, that you said that you see one chain after another. In my uh, personal morning readings uh, in this little stretch, it's 2 Corinthians is my New Testament reading. And I was struck, now that we're talking about this, how much in 2 Corinthians, because Paul's moved on to Macedonia, he's writing back saying, oh, thank goodness your faith is is secure, and Titus brought us news. And he's telling them what's happening, and things are not going well. I mean, that's that great passage where we feared for our very lives, but we mm-hmm. knew that God would preserve us. And he's going through tremendous things. And at the same time, he's writing about how joyful he is, uh, his camaraderie with them. And so that just kind of underlines what you were saying, is that we're going to face real challenges, but that's when you find out what real joy is. It's no longer the ups and downs of circumstances that control joy. And it's amazing to me that Henry Skugel knows this in his 20s. Right. That that's a that's a remarkable thing about this book is this guy in his young life was able to see this and articulate it in a very powerful way. In fact, the whole the whole thing could be summed up with a verse from 2 Corinthians, you know, what does it mean mm-hmm. to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? That's the kind of life that Skugel is talking about. In fact, mm-hmm. at one point in the in the book he talks about the love that we have for others makes us essentially immune from certain situations of suffering. So, so mm-hmm. he talks about if somebody were thrown in prison and somehow it was granted to them to spend the evening talking with the one that they really love, maybe a spouse or something, that mm-hmm. they wouldn't really mind being in prison anymore because they would be in the presence of the one that they loved. And yeah. his his point, the application of that is the 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 one who is truly a Christian, the person who's walking in true religion, can speak with their beloved at any time. The the utmost of right. our affections is set on God, and he is constantly present to us. And so that should actually reorient the entire way that we live our life, is that that, that pleasure is available to us at all times because we've set our love on him. One quote. This has got to be. This has got to be in the same page or two as the one that, the, that you just read. But it was one of my favorites in the whole book. It says, "The highest and most ravishing pleasures, the most solid and substantial delights that human nature is capable of experiencing, are those that originate in the warm satisfactions of well placed affections." Hmm. That's going to be huge for Jonathan Edwards. In fact, I should have looked up if Jonathan right. Edwards quoted this this very line because that that last phrase, the warm satisfaction of well-placed affections, is the theme of religious affections. 
that not right. only do we develop these these affections and not only does the change take place on the level of desire but that putting our affections onto the right person is uh -huh. the greatest satisfaction that we can have in the human life what's interesting is of course in for my background from a research standpoint i'm thinking aristotle knew this you know he, yeah. he didn't get it exactly right uh -huh. because he thought that setting the mind on virtue was the greatest right. thing that a person could do and that is a great thing for a person to do but the greatest thing is actually to set our minds on a person to set ourselves on the person of mm -hmm. god through his son jesus christ and this second section th th that is the heart of it is it, this is no longer an abstract exercise this is the day-to-day -day life of loving and trusting god and he's trying to mm -hmm. get us to a place where we can feel and understand and experientially identify with what he's talking about and again like he did in the first section he's going to go back through love uh charity purity and humility to talk about what it's like in each of these areas if you have this fountain mm -hmm. of living waters coming out of you you will be a person then who whose life is marked by the same things that mark the life of God. Love for other people, charity towards them, purity of your life. There was a great little line in that section on purity. Whatever defiles the soul disturbs it too. Mm. So when you live a life of purity, those disturbances of sin go away in your life. I thought that was a great way to put that. That is a really interesting observation. And then humility. You know, just thinking of ourselves right. accurately in light of who God is and who we really are. Yeah. Then, uh, you know, to me, those, that was the meat of the book. Uh, the third section aids to true religion was good. It, it's where he got a little more practical and talks about the idea of meditating on scripture, uh, doing your works. I mean, all these things. And he's right to put this last because the other things come first and then they begin to flow out, uh, from there. And so he ends it with this third section on what are some things that can aid you as you go about your true religion. Yeah, let me I'll mention one thing from that final section because you can go through the first parts of this book and and you can say, wow, that all sounds really amazing. Uh, but that's kind of something for super Christians and the yeah. Puritans. You know, the Puritans were walking six <laughs> inches off the ground in terms of holiness yeah. compared to what we're doing. You know, you can get in that mindset of saying, oh, that was true for them, but it doesn't seem very true for me. But but he acknowledges that right at the beginning of the third section. He says, when a person sees how infinitely distant the common temperament and human nature are from this goal, he may perhaps be ready to despair and give up thinking how utterly impossible it is to attain that. And you certainly can have that feeling reading this book. You might have that feeling listening right now. Well, this is all well and good for them to talk about, but my life is nothing like that. You know, I'm mm -hmm. I'm so far away from that. And he makes a, a fantastic point at the end when he starts to talk about these, what we would call spiritual disciplines or means of grace. Uh -huh. He says, our great hope in this doesn't stem from our ability to read our Bibles and pray and put sin to death in our life. Our hope stems from the fact that this is actually God's mission for us. Everything we've talked about in these first two sections are what God has said is the life of a Christian. That, that this is what he's about in the Christian life is inviting people into his own divine life, sending his spirit to change us from the inside out, the level of our affections. 
And so we may feel disordered and distracted and unworthy. We may feel like we're not growing very fast, but he makes uh-huh. this point. Is the one who created you unable to recreate you over time? And so right. our our great hope is that this is God's mission. This is what God has promised to do in everyone who loves him. And so it is, like we said earlier, it's going to take effort on our part. It's going to be difficult. We're going to have to stick with it and we're going to have to work hard, but we can rest in the fact that God has promised and he has set himself to accomplish this goal. And so we know that it can be accomplished. You know, that's probably the most encouraging thing of several that I took away from this was at one point in the book, he's saying exactly what you said. He said, first of all, as he says, as I go about talking about this, you're going to struggle with, wow, how can I attain that? First of all, we don't. Christ forms it in us. He said, but don't consider it to be something strange that you might be this way because this is what you were intended to be. And this is what Christ is going to form you into. So don't be daunted by it. It's actually more natural for you to be this way than the ways mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. That's a really that was a really encouraging point. And and then he goes on to say, you know, and here's some ways that you can do that. Here's what a life mm-hmm. of God and the soul of man practically looks like: putting your sin to death, keeping watch over yourself and your temptations, doing the things that are commanded in the Bible setting aside time to contemplate and meditate on the goodness of God. So there's there's these practical things that you can do. It's all rooted in that promise that God is actually the one who is going to start and sustain and finish this process in your own heart. One more thing I'll add on that section before we wrap up. I thought his, his he had a few comments on putting away indwelling sin. Mm-hmm. And he said... We cannot expect to have our sickness cured if we are daily feeding on poison. I thought that was a great line, a really powerful word picture about our continued sin in our life is like drinking poison every day and wondering, why are we not getting any better? (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. Yeah, there's an awful lot of down-to-earth practicality from the Puritans, and that's what I like. I know the language can be a little hard to get through at times, but if you think about it, they weren't living a technological life like we are, and yet, uh, obviously, they were no less intelligent than we are, and they were no less faithful than we are, but they're living a little closer down-to-earth. And one thing that always sticks in my mind, and Henry Skugel's story is illustrative of this, is for us— Most of the time for us in the West, barring something going wrong, like being sick or something, losing your job or something, our lives, the default is pretty good. Hmm. Henry Skugel, the default was bad. And then it got worse. I mean, that was just life in the 1600s. And so I think there was an immediacy to this that we may not feel. And I think that's sometimes why we resonate with these writings and we come closer to God when things aren't going well. And I think that's their life every day. And I think that's part of why you get some of these gems from that era. I agree. And their experiences speak volumes to us, their faithfulness and their perseverance speak volumes to us about the sustaining truth of their mm-hmm. work and and the substance of what they've said. I love the way that uh, 
Joel Beakey ends his forward of this book is a great summary of what I hope the impact of anybody reading this book. It's certainly been the impact for me of reading this book. He says, this book is very useful for nominal Christians and those who minister to them as it unmasks the emptiness of formalistic religion. That's what I think is going mm. on in big sections of the American church right now is that you're seeing people, you know, quote unquote, leave the church and, and they are leaving the church, but are they leaving the faith? Some of them are leaving the faith. Some of them are realizing that they were just going through the motions for a faith that they never really had. Right. And in those cases, they are they are experiencing this very thing, the emptiness of formalistic religion, the, the emptiness of trying to just keep things looking good on the outside with no power, no drive changing things on the inside. That is a miserable place to be. But the contrast, and this reminds me of what Blaise Pascal says in the in the Ponces is the best apologetic oftentimes is to help people want Christianity to be true and then show them that it is true. And this is where I think we as an American church could could really grow in what are we projecting to people? What are we saying yeah. about the Christian life? Mm-hmm. Well, he says this unmasks the emptiness of formalistic religion. But it shows the magnificence of a real relationship with the living God. I think if people, if the first word that people were inclined to say about Christians who have true religion was that it is a magnificent thing to have a real relationship with the living God, that would be a wonderful life for us. And it would be a wonderful apologetic to other people. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.